Good morning. Uh, today's verses are from 1 Samuel 16 and 17. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And, da and David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord will be with you. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, I am a dog, that you come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. When then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give you the dead bodies of the host of the, Philistine, uh, of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of, of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into, your hand. He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Amen. You can be seated. Didn't Will do a great job of that? Yes. Yes. He did awesome. When I was reading about uh, David this week, we don't know exactly how old he was, but probably not much older than Will is. And so I thought that would be a great chance for us to hear the word of the Lord from somebody about David's size. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the chance uh, to come before your word now. God, we come... Uh, humbly, dependent upon you, uh, dependent upon your spirit to move in us. God, with a um, familiar and famous passage, God, we pray that our, our hearts and minds would not be uh, too quick to assume that we know uh, what you want to do in our lives uh, through a passage like this. Well, God, we pray that we'd be receptive, that we would be obedient, um, and most of all, we'd be dependent on you. So, Lord, bless this time that we share and draw us to you in Christ's name. Amen. 
Sometimes if we are really uh, close up next to something, that can be really helpful because we can see it really well. But at other times, being too close to something means you kind of lose perspective on the whole. And so I have a a short game I'm going to play with you where I'm going to put some pictures like this up here. And uh, my request is that you try to figure out what these are, but don't shout them. Either write it on your paper or whisper it to a friend. That way you can get credit for being smarter than me because I couldn't figure out any of these. But I'm going to put a few of these up there. So this first one, it's got these little points of some kind, black and white. You think you got a guess? Mine was a porcupine and I was wrong. Here's what it actually is. It's a paintbrush. Didn't see that one coming. The second one's kind of this weird yellowish, orangish, shiny something substance. I couldn't decide if it was flowing. Is it liquid? What, What exactly might it be? So it's an orange. It's an orange. I got a couple to figure that one out. All right. Uh, last one, I really had no clue. I thought this was like an aerial picture of some kind of desert landscape. And, but then I know it's supposed to be up close to something, so I couldn't quite figure it out. You got a guess? It's a cantaloupe. All right. Some of you guys are a lot smarter than me, which I already knew. And so I feel reinforced in that understanding uh, that you guys figured that all out. Uh, we, when we are close to something, sometimes that's helpful. But sometimes we can lose perspective. We're so close. It's so much in our face that we can't see the forest for the trees, so to speak. We we get too close to something. I am notorious for being laser focused on whatever's right in front of me that I I frequently miss whatever is going on around. If I'm not if you're not right in front of me, it's easy for me just to to forget. And so I've got to have I've got to be careful with this. So I wonder about you. Can you evaluate your life and say, how do you do? with being able to keep perspective, the big picture, while in the nitty-gritty. Can you, see, can you see the forest, or do you get stuck on the trees? So often when we look at life decisions, or situations, or events going on around us, or in the world, or people we know, or people we hear about, or relationships we have, or roles we have uh, in those situations, like parents, or employees, or whatever else, I, I, my question for all those is, are we seeing them correctly? Are we seeing the things in front of us correctly? Or are we looking at this situation, this, this, this relationship, this instance, this person, and, and we're so up close to it that we can't see it for what it really is? That's what I want to get at this morning. Today, um, I'll even add to that list that sometimes my fear is that when we get really familiar, like David and Goliath, or we, we're just really focused on one part of the Bible, we can, it, it seems almost counterintuitive, but you can be so close to the Bible that you forget the perspective, you forget the big picture, you forget the big story of the Bible, and you end up missing, misinterpreting the, the little detail that's in front of you or the one story that's in front of you. So I, I want this for our, our lives, but also in how we read the Bible. Are we keeping right perspective? Are we keeping it in the order that God actually intended it to be? We're working our way through First and Second Samuel this fall and we've titled this series, Looking for a King, because early in the book of 1 Samuel, the people come to Samuel and say, we're tired of all these other forms of leadership. We want a king. And of course, the problem was they had a king. His name is God. He is in charge. And so they rejected God, their king, because they wanted an earthly king who would go out and fight their battles for us. Well, last week we saw where that earthly king, that first earthly king of Israel, Saul, rejected God, turned his back on God. He feared man more than he feared the Lord. And so God rejected him. 
And in the middle of that passage, a part I just, you know, we can't, we're going at such a speed. I'm trying to give you an overview of these books. We're not touching uh, all there is. But one of the parts I didn't touch last week, 1 Samuel 13, 14, uh, where um, Samuel says to Saul, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince, to be the ruler, to be the next king. So the Lord now started with the people looking for a king, and now we have come to the point where God himself is looking for a king. Of course, he's looking in a much different way because he already knows to the end from the beginning, but he is looking for the next king of Israel. And so that's what we see in chapters, chapter 16 today. God is looking for a king, and he is sending Samuel to do that. First Samuel 16, 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your home with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, starts this sacrifice, invites the sons of Jesse, and we see that Samuel is the one who is so close to something he can't see the perspective of it. Verse 6 we read, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Here is Jesse's oldest son, and he looks like a king. He must have been tall. It's at the height of his stature. And so Samuel's looking at this and saying, what, what, Surely this is the guy, right? But he learns a lesson that's of highest importance. I think this is the key. What The lesson he learns right here is the key to this passage, including the David and Goliath story we're going to get to in just a second. But more than that, <clears throat> this lesson is the key to understanding First and Second Samuel. To understanding the way this book is meant to be, under, like the way we're supposed to hear this, it comes right here. And I think even more than that, this is a key concept for understanding the whole Bible and our lives. And that concept on the, word, on the Lord's words to Samuel are in verse 7. He says, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Do you know that? The Lord sees not as man sees. It is really easy for us to ignore that. And yet when I say that, you say, of course that is true. Of course, God being the creator of all the universe... The one who is in charge of all things, the one who is eternally existent, has no beginning, will have no end. The one who has all power and all knowledge and all wisdom, the one who is in all places, the one who has never been, we've never been without. He has always been here. Of course, his ways, his thoughts, his eye, the way he sees things, of course that's going to be different than ours. And yet, how often do we just assume that the way I think, the way I see, the thing that's in front of me, my perspective of it, surely my way is right and not God's way. It can be really easy for us to lose sight of this truth. But my question for us today is, will you see with the eyes of man or with the eyes of the Lord? Will you see with the eyes of man or with the eyes of the Lord? What's your vantage point in life? with the situation you're facing, with the relationships you're in, with the job you have, the roles you have, the responsibilities you have, the things that are right up in front of you, are you looking at them with the eyes of man, with a, a natural human way of looking at them, or are you backing up and asking for God to give you the eyes of Him, the Lord's eyes, God's vantage point on the things you're seeing? Because the truth is, the Lord sees it differently than we do many times. 
He has a different perspective. And his is right. His is right. His is the reality. His is the truth. Ours is often flawed. And we know this as we watch ourselves and others grow up. A two-year-old might see an electrical outlet as an opportunity to explore where a fork can go. But the, praise God that as we grow up, we see that differently. A teenager might see that the highest priority in life is to be cool and to fit in and to have a good, you know, a, a really, to people to think that you're cool. A, a newly married couple might see their first argument as just like so devastating that it's just got to be grounds for divorce because this isn't, we, we, didn't, we didn't sign up for this. A midlife man might see a fancy car as a way of getting out of the boredom, routines of life. A later in life person might see retirement as this opportunity for selfish self-indulgence. The Lord's eyes are not as man's eyes. And as we mature in the Lord, we recognize that just because something's big in front of me, just because it's, this is my vantage point right here and right now, does not mean that that vantage point is reality. The Lord's view, that's the truth. And that's what we seek. I was humbled this week when I stopped long enough to realize that Samuel's the one that missed this first. If there's any characters in the Bible who are, who are pretty good, like pretty good guys that seem to make the right decision more often than not, Samuel's got to be on that list. This guy has been super impressive since the beginning. He's an incredible birth story, offered up at the, uh, he's given into the temple from a very young age. He hears the voice of God. He's resisted so many different temptations for power. He's submitted to God's voice over and over again. And yet Samuel's the one that walks into the house of Jesse or into the group as they're offering the sacrifice. And he said, well, the Lord said it's got to be a son of Jesse. And here's the firstborn. And he is tall in stature. Surely this is him. And then God has to tell him, no, that's not him. Well, surely it's the secondborn. No, no, it's not him either. Maybe it's the third. Nope, not him either. I was humbled when I realized if Samuel misses this, Samuel, the one who was the, the last judge, the one who had God's ear, the one who listened, who heard God's voice and spoke for the Lord. If Samuel missed this, then we should be humble enough to say, I probably missed this too. I probably missed this too. We want to see with the eyes of the Lord, but probably more often than we realize, we're seeing with the eyes of man. That's the theme I want you to see over these two chapters and really much broader than that. But for today, I want you to see this theme and I want to give you three examples, three ways this shows up in 1 Samuel 16 and 17 where there's an option. There's two things before you, contrasted right before you over and over again. Are you going to see with the eyes of man or are you going to see with the eyes of the Lord? So I want you to invite you, especially with a familiar passage like this, to dive in with that lens. What, how are we going to look at this. The next part of 1 Samuel 16, 7 gives you the first example for us today of how God wants us to see things differently than the natural man would see it. Verse 7 continues, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If we're going to have the eyes of the Lord, if we're going to see things as God sees them, then the, the first call of 1 Samuel 16 is to look not to the outward appearance, but to the heart. Look at the heart, not at outward appearances. God said, a son of Jesse is going to be the next king. So surely it's the firstborn. Nope, not Eliab. Oh, not the secondborn, Abinadab. Not Shema, uh, Shemua, Shemaiah. I don't know. 
Nope, none of those guys. Got to have somebody with an easier name. Appreciate that. <laughs> Jesse had been told to bring out the sacrifice, so he bring, to, bring all of his, to bring his sons to the, to the sacrifice. And, and I don't, we don't know exactly what all he knew was coming, but he knew he was supposed to bring his sons. But logically, he's like, yeah, I'm going to bring my sons, but somebody's got to stay out with the sheep, so we'll just leave the runt, I mean the youngest, out there taking care of the sheep while we go do this important religious thing. We've got something important to do, but somebody's got to keep you know, in charge of that. So just leave David and it won't really matter. So Samuel meets the seven oldest brothers and he's like, wait a second, none of these guys are it. Is there, it's got to be another one. And so Jesse said, well, yeah, of course, but he's the youngest. He's out watching the sheep. He said, nobody's going to sit down until he comes. When David shows up, God says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Of eight sons, David was literally Samuel and Jesse's last guess. Last guess. Last pick of who they thought God was going to choose. But he is who God chose. Because God was not looking at outward appearances. He was looking for somebody after his own heart. He was looking at the heart. And what a challenging concept to us. We are visual people. Do you know that? Do you recognize how visual we are, we live in increasingly visual times when everybody's got a camera and a screen in their pocket where we can see not just what we can see, but we can see all around the world at any given moment in any given image or video or newscast or whatever at any moment. Our life is so driven by the visual, outward beauty, physical beauty. We're out, we, we're, we live in a, in a visual age and God's intentions are not not always visual driven. We, we live where people focus on wealth and status and possession and clothes and all the external markers for, for, for worth and value and importance. But God made our world differently. He made our world differently where the visual was not intended to be primary. And here's, here's how we know that. Think of all the really important things, according to God, that are not visual. God's character, God's nature, who He is. There are things in this in this material world that give us clues and help us understand more of who God is, but you could never get to who God is just with your eyes. You could never get it there just with images. You got to have the word. You got to have God's voice. You got to have God's truth. And those things are invisible. Consider God's glory. How can you comprehend God's glory with just a painting? They may point that way, but there's more to it than that. Think about our relationship with God. You can't see that. That's invisible. Our relationship with people. Love is invisible. Forgiveness is invisible. Reconciliation. Consider redemption, joy, contentment, affection. Even things like music or things we say, these are all things that are invisible. There may be visible representations of them in some way, shape, or form, but they are by nature invisible. God created a world, us in a material world, for a purpose. The visual has a purpose. But many times, most times I would think, it's for the things that are invisible. For us to behold the glory of God in a deeper way than just our eyes can take in. God's love is not meant to be something primarily that you understand with your eyes. Our relationships, our, the love you have with your spouse, the love you have with your friends, is not a tangible thing you can see or touch. It's invisible. So if we are focused only on outward appearances, we are going to live a very shallow life. To go deep, we've got to see beyond what we can see with our eyes. Look at the heart, not just outward appearances. Who are you 
on the inside? Does that matter to you as much as what people can see with their eyes? Do you live life for the things of the heart or just for the things of the eyes? What about those you love and what you long for in their life? How do you pray for your kids, for your spouse, for your coworkers, for your friends? Do you pray for material blessings? Do you pray only for, for, for the, the markers of status and wealth and prosperity? Those can be blessings from the Lord, but aren't the invisible things of far more significance? Who we are as people, who our children are, their character, their faith, their love. We are people who are not driven just by our eyes, but by our hearts, by the eyes of faith. God saw something unique in David that matched his own heart and says, this is a man. Not because of the way he looks primarily, but because of his heart. This is the man that I'm calling to myself. Look at the heart, not just outward appearances. God makes that clear to Samuel and Samuel anoints him. And as soon as he does, verse 13 says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. From this moment forward in the rest of David's life, his life is driven and focused by this. The spirit of God dwells in him. And it's interesting to put this little marker in, in, in David's life in your, in your mind as you read through his story that you would, we might think the spirit of the Lord's upon him. Things are going to go really well for him. And they do many times, but they don't get easier. In many ways, they get harder. I, I never want to, I want to be careful about supposing things that are not in the Bible. But I have to imagine that at some point in David's life, he goes, you know, if I had just been left out in that pasture with the sheep, just fighting against lions and bears, things would have been easier. He gets the spirit of God and does incredible things. But it doesn't mean life gets easier. The very next verse in verse 14 sets up this contrast between him and Saul. God's spirit rushes upon Saul. But verse 14 of chapter 16 tells us that God's spirit has departed from Saul. And so we're meant to see how these two people are so different. Here was Saul who is head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He's the king. He's sitting on his throne. He's been all this experience in battle. And yet he is tormented by a spirit. He's not even at peace in his own, in his own soul. So he calls in, and it just so happens that somebody who's really good at this instrument, like a harp type thing, happens to be David, who comes and sits in his presence and is playing music for him to give him peace. And you're meant to see this contrast. Here's this, this king who has all these material, visible things that are going for him, and yet he's not at peace in his soul. And he's, the only peace he has is from this young boy who's got the Spirit of God in him, the things that are not visible. And it's changing. It's that those are such different in such different places. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. The setting, this, this, this is the, the backdrop, chapter 16, that leads into one of the most famous stories of all the Bible. David and Goliath is a story that, that people tell that know nothing about the Lord. And this is a story that makes this rounds far beyond just Christian circles. And for good reasons. It's an incredible story. But I like putting chapter 16 with verse 17 so that you see that we're called to see this differently than the world outside might look at this story. People who do not know the Lord, people who do not have eyes of faith might miss it, although it's here. We're not adding something to the passage. We're going to see it in the passage. But we might come at this differently if we're not a Christian, if we don't know God and how he intends for us to read this. We're getting comfortable out on the battlefield by now in 1 Samuel. It seems like we spend a lot of time on the battlefield. 
But this battle is different than the ones we've seen before. It's the same two enemies we've seen. The Philistines are fighting against the Israelites, but this time they have a different strategy. They've got this one champion who stands up and says, instead of us all going to battle, let's just do mano a mano, one-on-one, winner take all. And so the Philistines put forth, of course, their giant named Goliath. And we meet him in chapter 17, verse 4. And from verse 4 all the way to verse 10, we get this lengthy description about Goliath's size and his armor and all these bits and pieces of his physical description. And the Bible doesn't waste words. Of course, the scrolls and things were pretty expensive, but more than that, God is just really good with words. He doesn't put useless things in the Bible. This guy gets seven verses or whatever it is describing physical things about who he is. And if you're reading through 1 Samuel and you go, what did I just read in chapter 16? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You're supposed to read this physical description of Goliath and go, so what? (laughs) So what that he's big? So what that he's got a whole bunch of armor? So what that he's the champion of the Philistines? It doesn't matter what he looks like. And so that's what the Israelites say. No, they don't. (laughs) No, they don't. They miss it. They miss it. We're supposed to know because we just read, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But that's not what the Israelites see. Verse 11, when Saul, the king, the guy that's in charge, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Man, that guy's big. That guy's big. I don't want anything to do with him. And as you pick, if you pick up chapter 17, if you just know this story, you're reading this story, we sympathize with the Israelites. I don't want to go to battle with that guy. That guy looks big. That looks scary. I would be terrified to go into battle with this guy. We sympathize with him, at least until we read David's approach, and we go, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have sympathized with the Israelites. Verse 12 of the story jumps back away from the battlefield to where David is. And we get kind of his backstory leading him up to the battle. He's running back and forth between Saul's camp and his his uh, Saul's household and his household taking care of things. And then Jesse, David's dad, says, hey, we need to get you to take some stuff to the battle lines for the sake of your brothers. And when he gets there, he hears Goliath's challenge that he's been giving for 40 days now. And the challenge is, I defy the ranks of Israel. He is deliberately speaking against the people of Israel and saying, I'm in charge, I'm the ruler, I'm king, you are not. And all the people are terrified. But David sees this differently. Because he sees, not as man sees, but as the Lord sees, who looks on the heart and not outward appearances. So David asks some of the troops, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Here is a late teenager, maybe 17, 18. We think he's probably less than 20. That seemed to be the age that people went into battle, and he wasn't at the battlefield, so he was probably less than 20. So probably less than than 20 years old. He's looking up this 9-foot-tall plus giant, screaming giant, and he's saying, Who does this guy think he is for challenging the living God? Who does he think he is? He's absolutely right, of course. This is what the Israelites should have said. And even more than the Israelites in general, this is what Saul should have said. Saul is the king. Back when they chose a king, why did they pick a king? They said, we want a king who will go out to fight our battles for us. He is a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. This is Israelite's champion. This is Israelite's 
giant. And yet, just like the rest of the Israelites, Saul is shaking and afraid because Saul, like everybody else, is looking at outward appearances and not at the heart. David's words of faith start spreading around the camp. And David's own brother, Eliab, gets angry at him, proving the condition of his own heart and why Samuel didn't anoint him in the first place. We saw why he's rejected now, because he's questioning. Uh, David has to face kind of his own in-house Goliath, so to speak, that disdained his faith and his youth. Then he goes on before Saul, who questions his inexperience. How could, this po- how could you possibly stand a chance against this Philistine? He's been fighting battles longer than you've been alive, essentially is what he's saying. And David's reply is, well, I do have some experience with, not with giants of men, but with beasts like lions and bears. And what did he learn in those experiences? Did David come out of his time as a shepherd where he was fighting against these, guys, these, these animals and say, you know what? <clears throat> I got muscles. I got strength. I got courage. I got this. No, that is not what David says. David doesn't say, I anything. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Verse 37, the David said, the Lord who delivered me. The Lord worked. And what did he do? He delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear and will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. If we read David's story here and we applaud David's courage, we've missed the point. He is courageous, but not because of anything in him, but because he is seeing how the Lord is at work. For the life of me, other than God himself, I have no idea why Saul would send this guy into battle. He says in verse 37, David said to Saul, go and the Lord be with you. Saul puts his whole army and his whole life on the shoulders of this 17-year-old kid and says, go for it. And you know where it's going from here. You know about the sling. You know about the stone. You know David wins. And we'll read that in just a minute. But it's worth noticing here, before we even, just in the lead up to the battle, what is so amazing about David. We come to David's stories. You pick up any children's book. I pulled a couple from our shelves here. They probably won't be on our shelves anymore. But we, we pick up children's books. We pick up... Countless Bible stories. And the main takeaway, not that this isn't part of the story, but it misses the point. Maybe it's not even part of the story. I don't know. But the main takeaway so many times in the David and Goliath story is, here's how you slay your giants. Here's how you have courage. Here's how you win the battle. You, 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 you. If you come away from reading David and Goliath's story and say, it's anything about me or you, you've missed the point. (laughs) I, I want you to imagine, like this, so this is not a classic underdog story. People come to David and Goliath's story and say, oh yeah, yeah, we know this story. It's kind of like, like Rudy making it to the Notre Dame football team. I know this story. I know this is like Rocky Balboa taking out whatever giant you know, guy in the boxing ring. This is like the, the Cinderella 13 seed NCAA basketball team who makes it all the way to the Final Four where David is taking out Goliath. David and Goliath gets quoted in every sporting event where the little guy beats the big guy as if it's just about the courage and the grit and the tenacity of this little guy to take out the big guy. And so we come to this Bible story and we say, be like David, be courageous. You can do it. And we, we, we try to holy it, sanctify it, 
by saying, because the Lord will do it for you, you know? And it, well, that's true. That's true. You know, it's going to be all the Lord. But the temptation here is that we preach moralism. We preach something other than the gospel when we come to the Bible and we say, we start with you. If we start with you anything, then we've missed the point because you and I aren't the point. If we are just teaching a moral lesson, then we are teaching Aesop's fables or something else, but we're not teaching the Bible because the Bible is not primarily a moral lesson. The Bible is primarily about God. The Bible is primarily about the one true hero. And it's not me and it's not you. Imagine David coming fresh off this battle and somehow God sends him right from the battlefield to stand here with us today, right? Imagine we get to speak to him like right after this battle happens and we pull together this massive celebration. We put David's picture on the screen. We put a cake out there with David's name on it and a face, you know, we draw on there. Imagine we give out little postcards, little like playing cards to the kids with David's name on it. And they'll come ask for his signature. And we're just making a big deal out of David. Maybe we throw him a parade in downtown Fountain Inn. If we did all that for David, you know what David would say? Well, I don't know really, but you know, I'm guessing. He'd be like, did you even, did you even hear the story? Did you even hear what happened? And specifically, did you hear the things I said? Did you hear what I did? As people wrote down my story, did you hear what I said? Because if you heard what I said, then you would not miss this, that we're supposed to give God the glory, not man. Give God the glory, not man. That's your second way of seeing things through the eyes of the Lord, not through man. Listen to, to Goliath's taunt. It makes it really clear. Verse 43, the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So the Philistine, Goliath, starts this as a religious battle. And David responds with theology. He says in verse 45 and 46, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of, of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and will strike you down and cut off your head. And the ends in 47 with, The battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into the hand. Five times I count there that He talks about the Lord. Who's in charge of this battle? The Lord is in charge of the battle. The Philistine was cursing him and saying, My gods are better than yours. David says, No, Yahweh is in charge. It doesn't matter how big Goliath is or how small David is. This is a battle between the Philistine's God and Israel's God. And David knows Israel's God is the only true God, and he will win the battle. The Lord is the key to the battle. If we come away from this story primarily thinking about how great David is, we have really missed the point. We have really missed the message. We are called to give God the glory and not man. This has been a struggle, I think, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where the, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve and said, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. We have wanted to be like God. We have wanted to be the hero of our own story all along. And that is us putting ourselves on the throne in place of God. God is on the throne. He is the hero. We are not. We live in a culture of hero worshipers, do we not? What is every superhero movie and comic strip? What is every uh, story, Disney story, has got some kind of flawed hero that's got some superpower that can do something special we all look up to and aspire to be like. And there's, there's something good in us that longs for a hero. The problem is when we try to be that hero. If you are the hero of your own story, I, I want to tell you the end of the story sooner than later. It's not going to go well. 
You can't save yourself. You can't be your own hero. If you are living for the glory, the praise of others, then you're going to let yourself down. You and I need a greater hero than ourselves or any man. We need God. And we bring that, that, that flaw, that, that desire to be God, into the way we read the Bible so often. We come to the Bible primarily looking for ourselves. We come to the Bible asking, what does this say to me? What does it say about me? What does it say for me? We come to every character of the Bible and decide, are they good or bad? And am I going to imitate them or am I going to avoid doing what they did? And we all long are primarily and starting with me. But we're missing the point. The Bible is about God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I saw the Lord, Isaiah said, sitting on the throne, lifted high, and the train of His robe filled the glory, filled, filled the temple. And they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, uh, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The battle is the Lord's, David said, and He will give you into our hand. The Bible isn't primarily about us. It's primarily about God, and our lives should be too. We should be living in such a way that we want to give God the glory, God the praise, not man, not ourselves. Any confidence we have, any strength we have, if it is built on us and our abilities and our capacities and the things we can do, it will come crumbling down eventually, either because something goes wrong or we just end our lives. We're not eternal. Our hope, our confidence has to be in something greater. So then when it is, we will have confidence, but the, we won't even be thinking about our confidence. We'll just be thinking about God. People will say, yeah, they're courageous. We'll be like, we're just following God. We're just doing what God called us to do. That's what David's attitude was. And when he's that way, he does win the battle. And he wins in pretty amazing fashion. 49 and 50, David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Israelite and killed him. The last thing I want you to see in this passage is that what we have here is an incredible pattern of how God works in the world. We come to this passage and we want to be David. But I want to tell you, there's a different place you should find yourself in this story. We've got to come at the Bible humbly and say, I'm not the hero. If you're going to find yourself in this story, you should find yourself in chapter 17, verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of these Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What you and I need is not to be the hero. We need somebody to come be the hero for us because we are shaken in our boots, totally unable to defeat the biggest enemies before us. We need somebody to fight our battles for us. But being right there is actually really good news. You know why? Because the Israelites get credit for the victory. Do you remember how the battle was set up? It's mano a mano. Whoever wins, their whole team wins. So when David wins, the Israelites win. It is good news for us to be in the army. Because when David wins, we win. And if we see this story in the Lord's eyes, here's what I want you to hear. The last takeaway is we're called to receive salvation. Don't try to accomplish salvation. 
receive salvation. Don't try to accomplish salvation. The Israelites, they were saved. It was given to them by this new king, who's, this new one who's going to be king by David. It was a gift to them, not something they earned. They were terrified, and yet they get to win the battle. What an incredible act of grace. What an incredible act of generosity from the Lord. Now, we're not going to allegorize this story, but I want you to see a pattern here of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that what we, what we have here is a hero who wins a battle over an incredibly challenging enemy. And Christ did the same. Jesus is the Son of God who took on flesh, and He was born in the family lineage of David, in the town of David, in Bethlehem. And the greatest giant Jesus took on was Satan himself. And just, at, just like after David's victory, you keep reading on, after he, he kills David with the stone and the sling, do you know what he does? It's kind of gory and, you know, makes for good movies, but kind of gory. He goes and takes Saul's own sword and chops his head off and brings it back to Jerusalem. One of my favorite little details of this story is that when, when Jesse, David's son, David's dad, sent him to battle, he told him, hey, bring back some kind of token from battle. And he was probably thinking like, you know, a coin or a garment or something or a letter. David does bring back a token. It's the head of the giant. That's what he brings back from battle. How did he kill the, 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 the enemy? With a, with a stone, yes, but also with the guy's own sword. He killed Saul with his own sword. How did Jesus defeat Satan? He used death which is Satan's sword. The thing that Satan wants you and I to, to fear is death. He wants to use that against us, to let sin have its effect on your life and for you to die. And Jesus took on that sword. He, he laid on it himself. He died. But what happened in the grave is that death became the death of death. Jesus used Satan's own sword against him to cut the head off the serpent, to stomp on his head and end his life. Jesus won the greatest battle over the greatest enemy by defeating Satan and sin and death forever. And he used Satan's own weapon to do it. We are the Israelites in this story because Jesus has come. He has won the battle and he has given you the victory. You get to have the victory, not by something you do, but just by receiving what Christ has already done. And that's good news. The good news of the gospel is not that you need to work hard and you need to be the David and you need to have courage. And if you can just pull up your bootstraps and, and fight your best, then you will get the victory. That is an empty promise. And it is negligent of the, the condition of our own hearts. That's moralism. And it is ruining so many people's lives, even inside the church. It is not the gospel. The gospel is David won the battle. Jesus won the battle. He is the hero, and you and I can receive that salvation. Jesus' victory over death becomes your victory. Jesus' victory over sin can become your victory over sin and temptation. Jesus' victory over the division between Jew and Gentile can become the, the, our victory over divisions between people from all different places. Jesus' victory of, over darkness by shining the light of the resurrection that first Sunday morning 
can be our victory as we shine light to our neighbors and to the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel. His victory becomes our victory and changes everything about us. As long as we realize He gets the glory, we get the win. He gets the praise, we get to go along on His coattails. If you can see this story and the Bible and all of God's doing, not just really up close, but the full picture of His redemptive story, it's a much better story. It is good news. It's the glorious good news of the gospel. And it changes everything. It changes everything. I invite you to see your story, God's story, with eyes of faith, not with the eyes of man, and give the praise to God.